This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Ed O'Keefe in Washington. This week on Face the Nation, as the legal troubles for former President Trump and some of his key allies mount, his grip on the Republican Party tightens, leading up to the midterm elections. In the newest installment of this late summer drama, the judge who authorized that search warrant giving the FBI permission to seize classified materials from Mr. Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago now says he's inclined to make public some of the information in the affidavit justifying it. Despite the Justice Department's objection to releasing any of it, they're working on redactions. We'll talk with the top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Turner. He's one of many lawmakers who want to know more about those documents. Then we'll try to decipher the legal challenges in at least 13 federal, state, and congressional investigations and lawsuits involving the former president. And it's back to school time. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona will talk about the challenges facing our nation's school children, including teacher shortages across the country setbacks due to COVID. Plus, former White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator Dr. Deborah Burks returns to weigh in on the proposed changes at the CDC. Moving on to the midterm elections, as President Biden signs that bill that fights climate change, cuts health care costs, and raises taxes on corporations, yeah. Democrats hope to run with that victory towards the finish line in November. We've not wavered. We've not flinched, and we've not given in. Instead, we're delivering results for the American people. Will voters see it that way? Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell has a reality check. There's a, probably a greater likelihood the House flips than the Senate. Senate races are just different. They're statewide. Uh, candidate quality has a lot to do with the outcome. We'll take a look at why he's saying that with our political panel. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. I'm Ed O'Keefe. We'll see Margaret in a moment, but I'm helping her out today as she's dealing with a situation that's all too familiar for every parent, caring for a sick child. On this late summer morning, Americans are looking ahead to the fall. Kids are going back to school. And the politics leading into the midterm elections are heating up. We'll get to that in a moment. But we begin with Margaret's interview with Education Secretary Miguel Cardona. She spoke to him earlier. Good morning to you, Mr. Secretary. Good morning. This is a busy time of year for you, no doubt. Uh, President Biden said America's students are on average two to four months behind in reading and in math because of the pandemic. Now we also have this teacher shortage. And in some states like Missouri, a number of districts are shortening the school week to just four days. How much additional learning loss will happen because of the shortage? First of all, I'm excited about the beginning of the school year. This is a year full of promise and opportunities for students who have, for the last two years, uh, put up with too much. And uh, thanks to the American Rescue Plan, the dollars are there to make sure that we can open up our schools uh, with sufficient educators. Uh, our students need more, not less. So when I hear reports of uh, districts sh shortening up their week, uh, it concerns me. Our students uh, need additional support. They need smaller class sizes. They need tutors. They need after-school programs. So. Let's use the American Rescue Plan dollars to bring back retired teachers, to work with universities to make sure that our student teachers are starting a little bit earlier um, into their profession. Um, using the dollars that were put forward by the federal government, uh, we think it's important that our students get more this year, not less. Well, Americans have pumped billions of taxpayer dollars over the past three years into schools through emergency programs. You mentioned one of them. 
Um, Can the federal government force governors to reallocate those funds? I mean, how do you actually get governors to do what you're asking them to do? Right. You know, it's not really about forcing. It's about working with them. But let's face it, uh, this teacher shortage is a symptom of something that's been going on for longer than the pandemic. And that's a a teacher respect issue. Uh, Unless we're serious about providing competitive salaries for our educators, better working conditions uh, so that they can continue to grow. Is it really just about salaries? It's definitely not just about salaries, but let's think back the last couple of years. You know, our educators have bent over backwards. Uh, We went from totally in-person learning to remote learning overnight. Um, Yet the pandemic really pushed many of these educators out of the profession because in many cases, um, you know, educators were not uh, being respected when schools had to close. Uh, It created some tensions in our schools. We need to make sure we're supporting our educators, giving them the working conditions where they feel uh, connected to the community and feel supported in the work that they're doing. Critically important work. But in the meantime, it's a matter of what's best for students. And I want to ask you, we are seeing districts and change the qualifications so that instructors can be there in class. Uh, Oklahoma eliminated a general education test certification requirement. Arizona now allows people without a college degree to begin teaching before they graduate. In Illinois, people can teach in a classroom with just 90 hours of college education. This looks, Mr. Secretary, like the standards and quality of American education are being lowered. Right, you know, and and it's unfortunate. Our students need more now, not less. And while I understand that there are issues uh, getting qualified educators into the classroom, we've been working really closely with our states to give them not only the resources, but the ideas on how to help uh, address the short-term issue, incentivizing, Do you support these ideas? I do not support lowering any standards uh, for qualifications with teachers. I think we need to be creative in how we get the teachers in. For example, student teaching is four months of uh, teaching without pay. I, I think we should use the American Rescue Plan dollars to get student teachers and give them a salary. Many people are leaving the profession or training the profe- uh, training programs for the profession uh, because they cannot afford four months of teaching without salary. Um, I think we need to raise the bar on making sure teachers are getting paid what they're due. You know, the teaching profession, uh, college graduates earn on average 33% less than other college-educated uh, uh programs or other college-educated jobs, that, that's unacceptable. In the last 25 years, uh, when you adjust for inflation, teachers have made only $29 more than they did 25 years ago. We need to do better there, and that will address some of these shortage issues. Are you looking at targeted debt relief, student debt relief, for those teachers who are in programs like you just mentioned? Certainly. You know, the public service loan forgiveness program is up and running. We, we provided a waiver for one year to widen the net of people that can take advantage of that. So for those of you who are listening, studentaid.gov, check out to see if you're eligible now for uh, student loan relief. If you're a public servant and you've worked for 10 years, you should have your loans forgiven. We want to make the process simpler, but we're also focusing on making sure the loan forgiveness that we're providing goes to those folks who have been uh, taken advantage of by their institutions. All total, Margaret, $32 billion since day one of this administration in loan cancellation for those who either have total and permanent disability, those who have been taken advantage of by their uh, institutions of higher education. Uh, We're not slowing down. We want to make sure that college is more accessible and more affordable for uh, Americans across the country. Do you have a decision for us then on uh, what's going to happen at the end of this month for families budgeting in terms of uh, whether there will be a, a suspension of some of those student debt programs? Sure. I don't have a decision for you today, but what I will tell you mm-hmm. that daily we're having conversations about this and uh, the American folks will hear it before uh, the end of the month. Uh, we spoke to the superintendent of Los Angeles uh, School District just last Sunday, and he told us that there are roughly 10 to 20,000 children who are just simply missing. No idea where they went. Right. How widespread is this problem of, of lost children in American school systems? You know, it's a it's a concern not only in Los Angeles, but uh, in other parts of our country, in particular our urban centers, where we know the pandemic uh, impacted urban centers uh, where their density is higher. Uh, many families moved out of uh, cities. So 
the work that I've seen happening across the country that I'm really proud of is the work where districts are now hiring folks to work community liaisons, family liaisons, where they're knocking on doors, finding students, bringing them back into the classroom, re-engaging them. Um, it is an issue. Oftentimes, it's not just education. You know, the family is falling on hard times, uh, or they have, they've had loss in their family. So providing the support that they need is something that we're encouraging our schools to do, and um, we look forward to getting those students back, getting those families back into the classroom. When I spoke to you a few months ago, you pointed out the drop in enrollment specifically of the youngest Americans, kindergartners, preschoolers. Um, I know yes. that the CDC has loosened some of the guidelines for uh, schools when it comes to COVID um, health guidance. Each district decides its own policies. But right now we are seeing COVID spread. We are seeing monkeypox spread among children. Why isn't the Biden administration hosting town halls, informing people more directly instead of having these very confusing and changing CDC guidelines? You know, as a father myself, my children's uh, safety is uh, my priority and it's the priority for me that all uh, students are safe and, and can go to school healthy. That's why we've been fighting from day one uh, to increase vaccination efforts, to uh, make sure that the schools have the tools for the mitigation strategies that they need, that we have information. Uh, last week, I spoke to Dr. Walensky and Dr. Zha from the White House uh, about uh, this upcoming school year. And we feel very optimistic that it's going to be a great year, that families shouldn't be worried right now about monkeypox, and that we have the tools that we need uh, to give students vaccination, um, to keep them safe in our schools. I want our families thinking about how this year is going to be a better year than last year. We have better tools, better resources, and we should expect a better school year for our students and our families. Mr. Secretary, um, I think we all hope for that. Thank you for your time. Yes, thank you. Face the Nation will be back in one minute. Stay with us. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Last week, the head of the Centers for Disease Control, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, announced a complete systemic overhaul of the agency, signing its botched COVID response. For more on those proposals and other ongoing viral outbreaks, Margaret spoke earlier with Dr. Deborah Burks, a former CDC official who served as coronavirus response coordinator under former President Trump. Good morning, Dr. Burks. Good morning, Margaret. Great to be with you. You know, this was an incredible acknowledgement by the CDC director just a few days ago uh, about the agency that she runs. And Dr. Walensky said to CDC employees, to be frank, quote, we are responsible for some pretty dramatic, pretty public mistakes from testing to data to communications. This is our watershed moment. And she outlined these proposed changes to institutional culture, uh, accountability, communication, timeliness. Do you agree, doctor, with her diagnosis? I'm thrilled that she had Jim McRae and did this work because a lot of directors would have just tried to tweak and tweaking the agency at this point was not going to be successful. This is an inflection point. And they have to be approved still by the HHS secretary. I mean, do you think 
that it is enough for a bureaucracy to try to fix itself? Or does Congress need to step in and legislate here? Well, there's certain things that Congress needs to do. And the number one thing is to stop trying to create a parallel data system. Um, in my, many countries, the public health system and the clinical system are one. In our country, they have been separate and it has failed us. Back in January of 2021, when we spoke, I remember you saying uh, you didn't trust the CDC data that you were getting during the Trump administration. So if Dr. Walensky's saying that this is a problem, how does she actually fix it? Are you saying that the government can't do it alone, that it needs private industry to step in? Yes. And that was the way we were able to get the data. First and foremost, in March of 2020, all of our data that I used to warn Americans of who was at risk for severe disease, hospitalization and death came from our European colleagues. Um, that in itself should be an indictment of our system. Secondly, reporting was coming in extraordinarily slow from hospitals through a system that CDC had created. And I know this created controversy, but for three months I asked the CDC to fix its system and develop a partnership with clinics and hospitals and laboratories, and they wouldn't. And so that's why I asked all the hospitals to start reporting, and they did. And so I think sometimes we hold ourselves back. The private sector is willing to help us. Another issue I've had with the CDC, I've asked them over and over again, if you're gonna issue guidance, like the five days in return to work in a mask, show the data transparently that you utilize to come to that decision. Because I think when Americans saw that it was a very small number, that they would have really reconsidered those guidelines. And so you really need the information. Americans are smart. They can process the information, give them all of the data. Sorry, to pick up on what you just said, you are saying that the current CDC guidance of being able to return to work after five days if you wear a mask is based on flawed data? Well, it's, it's based on what we call in medicine a convenience data set um, rather than all Americans. We've had millions and millions of infections and we could have tracked Americans over that time period. We could have said to people, test on day three, test on day six, test on day nine they would have seen that the antigen test was still positive in most cases out to nine, 10 and 11. And we have to assume until we have better data that you're infectious if your antigen test is positive. And so we had, and I think this is the problem. I've studied, why, I've worked why, on- why would, the CDC, why would the CDC do that? Are you suggesting that there is a, um, a concern here due to the worker shortage or political interference? Why would they tell people to, to return to work if there's no way they'd actually have cleared the virus within a short period of time? Well, there definitely was a worker shortage. But I think when we have that happen, we have to be very clear. We can say to people, we think you're still shedding some virus and that's why we're telling you to wear a mask and a crude indication that you're still shredding virus is your antigen test and so we're really mm -hmm. not using the tools that we have to ensure americans can both survive and then thrive and we do have tools we have so many better tools now well, I raised political interference because, as you know, during the Trump administration, um, and you felt some of this, that was one of the criticisms. But when it comes to the CDC advice, I mean, if you go through it, people may forget we, we had field hospitals in the middle of Central Park and refrigerator trucks moving dead bodies. We've come a long way here, but the CDC guidelines on masks was wrong. It was wrong when it came to the tests they were trying to create and deploy. They were telling people to take their temperature, not realizing there was asymptomatic community spread. Are we at the point where you cannot rebuild public trust? I mean, is the agency worth reforming? Well, the way you rebuild public trust is be transparent. And I think that's in the report. Um, better data, better accountability, better transparency. But they also have to believe, and this gets to the culture piece, people can understand complicated issues. It's your job as a public health official. That's what public and public health means. Your job is to take complex 
situations and data and create graphs so that people can understand why you are making those recommendations. Recommendations that are created out of lack of transparency and out of a black box where you can't really follow the logic is what leads to fracturing and trust. And you really have to work to reestablish that. It can be done, but they have to change how they collect data, how they present data, and how they communicate to the American people. I want to ask you about monkeypox. It was first detected in May in this country. Now it's a public health emergency. And there are reports of it spreading among children, particularly in the state of New York right now. As parents send their kids back to school, what do they need to know? Well, I think what just was so disturbing to me about monkeypox is a lot of the issues that got us into the ditch with COVID were repeated. Those mistakes were repeated with monkeypox. Not adequate testing early on, not making tests available in every community that you knew was at risk. I mean, we had the roadmap of who was at risk. We should have immediately made it tests available through the gay and bisexual network. They are very responsible people. They're very knowledgeable about prophylaxis and preventing disease because they've been doing it for decades. This is a highly informed group. If they had communicated to that group, if they had provided testing, if they had provided vaccines to all of them in May, we wouldn't have this problem in August. And so five months has gone by, just like what happened with COVID, lack of preparation, lack of engagement, lack of utilization of the tools that we had in real time to prevent this 14,000 and probably it's well over 20,000 now. And remember, it can be spread, yes, skin to skin, but it can also be spread through clothing and linen. And so that's, we just have to tell people, if you have any kind of lesion, please get tested because you can spread it unknowingly to your household. You can spread it unknowingly to your family members. You can spread it unknowingly to your friends and to children. And in, I'm worried about um, long-term care facilities because it could, excuse me, also spread in long-term care facilities because of laundering. We should know right now, is monkeypox killed in cold water or do you need to wash the clothing and everything in hot water? I mean, these are practical solutions that the American people need. Dr. Burks, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you, Margaret. Always good to see you. Fears of nuclear catastrophe are mounting in Eastern Europe as Moscow and Kiev accuse each other of shelling a nuclear power plant in southeastern Ukraine the largest such plant on the continent. CBS News senior foreign correspondent Charlie Daggett is in Ukraine with more. Black smoke rises above the Russian Navy headquarters in Crimea. The apparent drone strike is the latest in a string of high-profile attacks penetrating air defenses deep within Russian-held territory. More fighting has been reported near the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant as Russia and Ukraine allow inspectors from the nuclear watchdog IAEA access to the complex. Nearly six months since the Russian invasion began, we revisited the scenes of some of the worst fighting in the early days of the war. The airfield at Hostomel on the outskirts of Kyiv, where outnumbered Ukrainian forces fought off elite Russian paratroopers intent on taking it over. The extraordinary amount of damage here tells the story of the ferocious firefight that took place at this airfield, a battle that would prove critical in the fight for the capital itself. Back in early March, the children's summer camp near Bucha, where we found terrified deputy camp director Tatiana sheltering elderly residents. Please help us, I ask you. Next could be here. I ask you go down. We did go down where we found the elderly and young children hiding out, even as thunderous explosions rang out. Tatiana. We found Tatiana again, alive and well this week. I'm so happy. I'm too. I'm glad to see you too. And thank you. Every day I remind you and say something. He looks so different. Uh, really? <laughs> in, in, a little bit. In a good way. We um, understand that we survive. That then, night when uh, I saw you? Yes. That morning uh, I decided that it is need to take out people from the downstairs. 
Can okay. you help us? Thank you. Well, I tried to help you. I didn't do much. No, you, you do. You saved their life. She said they were rescued the very next morning as Russian forces closed in. But other residential neighborhoods just like this are still getting flattened in the path of Russia's grinding military offensive and Ukraine's fight back, where territory gained and lost is measured not in miles, but feet. And there aren't many happy endings for those caught in the middle. Charlie Daggett reporting from Ukraine. We'll be right back. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Face the Nation. I'm Ed O'Keefe in this morning for Margaret Brennan. We turn now to the FBI search at former President Trump's Florida resort. Ohio Congressman Mike Turner is the top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee, and he joins us this morning from Dayton, Ohio. Congressman, great to have you with us. Thank you for being here. This past week, a Florida federal judge asked the Justice Department to prepare a redacted version of the the affidavit that set off the FBI operation at the former president's home, signaling he may be willing to release it as early as this coming week. But affidavits aren't usually made public during an investigation so as to not impede the investigation. I'm curious, what level of disclosure would satisfy the demand for the release of the affidavit, in your view? Well, this is very revealing because the court has already made a ruling that they believe, and remember, the court knows what's in the affidavit, that portions of the affidavit can be released to the public. Now, what's important about this affidavit is it will give us the information to understand how did the FBI justify raiding Marlargo and spending nine hours in the president's house uh, when we know the former president's home, they had other options besides just raiding the house. They could have gone and asked for the subpoena to be enforced. And the mystery sort of here deepens because we know Attorney General Garland himself has taken responsibility, said he approved it. And the American public want the attorney general focused on issues like human and drug smuggling at the border. They were Chinese espionage, uh, out, out of control crime in our cities. But if it's if, if it, you're going to turn to this, if you're going to turn to the former president, and Mar-Largo. They want to make certain that this is to the highest level. There's an imminent national security threat. And this affidavit will tell us, did they even allege so? Because in their document trying to keep the affidavit sealed, they didn't even allege that there was a national security threat. We should point out there's a poll out this morning at another news organization that finds almost six in 10 Americans actually support continuing this investigation. So while there may be other big issues, there's certainly wide public interest in this one. You're an attorney, though. Why would releasing any information in this affidavit make sense and assure the former president not only a fair investigation by the Justice Department, but potentially, if it gets to that, a fair trial? Well, I think, uh, and you're citing polls, and there are lots of polls out there, by the way. The polls also indicate that people want to make certain that that if this is an imminent national security threat, uh, that it's pursued. But also, they want to make certain that you don't have um, abusive discretion here. And what our concern is from our committee is there's an, an allegation of classified documents that falls within our jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And show us what you found, because the affidavit's going to have them tell publicly now what they told the court they were going to go find. Show us what you found. It certainly won't affect the investigation. We deal with classified documents and information all the time. Show us what it is that you went into the president's 
um, residence, spent nine hours at you know, former President Trump's residence. What is it that was that an imminent national security threat that you didn't just go to court and ask the court to to order that the documents be delivered to them? Why did they spend nine? And just think of the resources of 30 agents that spent nine hours in the preparation for that. When we have real imminent national security threats like Chinese espionage, the border, issues, that things that are going on in Ukraine, to take these resources and apply them here, certainly the American public wants to make certain this is not an abuse of discretion. Well, I'm, I'm curious, since you're a member of the Intelligence Committee, what use could a former president have for classified or top secret information once he's left office? Why, why bring it home with him to Florida? Well, it's, I don't know. I mean, you'd have to ask him, but certainly we all know that every former president has access to uh, their documents. It's how they write their memoirs. They don't have you know, great recall of everything that's occurred in their administration. And we don't know that they were uh, that they're classified. We know, according to the FBI documents, that they were they were uh, identified as marked classified. Uh, you have, of course, the former president saying that he declassified them themselves. But I think what's important here about this abuse of discretion, we have evidence of the FBI abusing that discretion and of misconduct on behalf of the FBI. The FBI, um, you know, we had an attorney for the FBI that actually was convicted of doctoring an email to obtain a warrant against uh, the, against Trump. There's a Trump's organization. You have the um, the FBI using the Russia dossier, uh, which has been proven to be debunked as evidence under a warrant that they submitted, both all of which CBS has reported, and I have them up on my website, your own stories of these abuses of discretion. And the other question that we have is, is just recently, uh, there was a raid on Project Veritas, which is a news organization to supposedly retrieve President Biden's daughter's diary. Now, that's not certainly an imminent national security threat. It might be embarrassing to the president, but it's not something you'd see them do for an ordinary citizen. So there are real questions as, what is the FBI doing here? It's the it's you know the rank and file FBI agents. Everybody agrees. You know, we, we support them. We have great faith in them. But the leadership of the FBI, when they undertake a raid against the current president's political rival, you have to ask these questions. Real quick, are you aware of any standing order from President Trump uh, that he might have had to a standing order to declassify documents he took from the Oval Office to the White House residence while he was in office? I have never served in the White House. I would never have any knowledge of anything that occurred at the okay, White House. Okay, so the Intelligence Committee wouldn't know whether the president had a standing and order. Whether Biden does, whether anybody does, what they're declassifying. In fact, we weren't even notified when President Biden declassified Got all it. the doc the information concerning the hunt for Zawahiri. And I was very surprised the detail that they made public there. Very concerning as to how it might inform al-Qaeda and future people that we're trying to target. Too quick. I had no, no advanced knowledge or, or notice when they did that. Okay, two quick questions for you on the future. You want to be the top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee next year? Well, I think that, that certainly I, my work on the Intelligence Committee is about national security and focusing on national security. And uh, that's going to continue to be my focus. Give us a sense then of what you would investigate if you were head of the Intelligence Committee and Republicans take control of the House? You know, as I said from the beginning, is what I think we want Attorney General Garland to be focusing on instead of Marlargo is Chinese espionage, certainly furthering how do we assist uh, Ukraine in fighting Russia aggression, uh, looking at ways that, that we look at what's going on at the border with human and drug smuggling and how it's affecting our families. And of course, there's always the issue of the you know, spiraling crime that's occurring in in our cities and how can we impact that? How can we ensure that we have the right uh, tools and information about any foreign influence that might be impacting that? And as a Republican in Ohio, what does J.D. Vance, who in some polls is trailing right now, have to do to win that Senate race and hold the seat for Republicans? Yeah, he has to make the case. And I, I think he's doing that. He's campaigning very hard. And, um, you know, you, 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 you should have him on. Uh, we'd love to. In fact, we've asked, and uh, so far we haven't heard back. But uh, if he's listening, J.D. Vance, we'd love to have you. Mike Turner, we loved having you. Thanks. We'll see you soon here in Washington. Now for a more detailed look at all of the legal problems swirling around former President Donald Trump, we're joined by Ricky Kleeman, criminal defense lawyer and a CBS News legal analyst. And here in Washington, David Lofman, former chief of the Justice Department's counterintelligence and export control section. Great to have both of you with us. David, I want to begin with you. You're the former head of the uh, division of the Justice Department that's now led by a guy named Jay Bratt, who argued in court this week regarding the potential release of this affidavit that it may, quote, chill future cooperation by witnesses whose assistance may be sought as this investigation progresses, as well as in other high profile investigations. Do you agree with his assessment? Uh, based on my experience at the Department of Justice, that's absolutely correct, especially in the early stages of an investigation. 
the Justice Department and the FBI want to do everything they can to protect the integrity and confidential law enforcement actions that are being taken. Do you have any sense then? Do you expect he's going to release at least part of this, a redacted version? I think the Justice Department knows it has to come back to the court with a reasonable proposal. The judge signaled pretty clearly that he wants to release some facets of this affidavit. And I think the Department and the FBI are now trying to come to grips with what they can live with with regard to public disclosures. And there are some portions of the affidavit that I think they'll be willing to make public. You just heard Congressman Turner of Ohio talking about the possibility of the Intelligence Committee getting right into the details of this at some point. Um, there is bipartisan agreement that they've got to hear something from the Justice Department. It's just a question of when and what exactly and how much. Uh, but in your view, is there a requirement for the Justice Department and FBI to do that at all? I mean, there's no requirement. Look, I mean, there's, this, there are sometimes classic collisions between coordinate branches of government. It does seem to be premature for Congress to be sticking its nose into an ongoing criminal investigation. That's what this is. And just because it implicates classified information, to me, doesn't seem to give a platform for the House Intelligence Committee to intrude at this time. Because it could unspool in a way where the information you share with them is leaked and then the investigation's compromised. His ability to have a fair trial would be compromised, right. I, I right? think they're trying to create a kind of a carnival atmosphere um, under the patina of, of the exercise of Congress's constitutional authority to conduct investigations. Ricky, to you, um, Alan Weisselberg, the former longtime chief financial officer of the Trump Organization this past week, pleaded guilty to 15 counts of fraud and tax evasion as part of the scheme to receive more than $1.7 million in off-the-books perks and compensation from the Trump Organization. Important to point out, the former president hasn't been charged as part of this civil case. But based on what you know about this case, what we've seen so far, is there any legal risk at this point to a member of the Trump family? There is hardly any legal risk because of the fact that the plea of Alan Weisselberg is against the Trump Organization, which really means the Trump Corporation and the Trump Payroll Corporation. It had to do with the fact that he received perks to, as you say, $1.7 million over a period of years. The plea bargain seems abundantly clear. He is testifying against entities, not people. And there's been so much focus in the past two weeks on the Mar-a-Lago operation, this Weisselberg guilty plea this past week. But I know you believe that it's what's going down in Georgia that is potentially most legally risky for the former president, correct? There is no doubt in my mind that the most risk to the former president is, in fact, the Georgia investigation. And one of the reasons I say that is because it has intensified in terms of the number of witnesses that the district attorney is calling before this special investigative grand jury, but also the fact that should not be overlooked is that Donald Trump has hired one of the best criminal defense lawyers in the country in the person of Drew Findling. Drew Findling was a past president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. He is based in Atlanta. He knows how to work within the system ethically and properly, and he's fierce. So when we look at this particular situation, Rudy Giuliani called to testify last week. We have no idea, nor should we have any idea in a secret proceeding what he said or if he took the Fifth Amendment at any point in time. This week, Lindsey Graham is set to testify on Tuesday unless the 11th Circuit issues a stay and buys into his argument that his uh, phone calls involving this election in 2020 and the results when he wanted allegedly to say that they should look into the mail-in ballots and perhaps there were many of the mail-in ballots that had faulty signatures and his communications with Donald Trump would be the focus of this particular special grand jury and that he wants to say, well, no, that was within my duties within the speech and debate clause. We're going to see what the 11th Circuit has to say about that. But I expect Lindsey Graham is going to have to testify. This grand jury is investigative only. They can issue a report that would tell the district attorney at a later point in time whether or not she does have reason to indict, probable yeah. cause to indict any of the players, including Donald Trump. And David Laughman, in terms of the operation of Mar-a-Lago, at this point, how concerned should any current or former staff of the pre former president there be concerned about legal exposure? 
Well, I think any, any individuals who were involved in removing classified information from the White House in the waning moments of the Trump administration, taking them to Mar-a-Lago, knowingly keeping them there in a place they're not authorized to be, has potential criminal jeopardy, depending on all the facts and circumstances that the investigation uncovers. Um, one of the statutes referenced in the search warrant is the Espionage Act, and at issue in principle is a provision that makes it a crime to willfully retain national defense information. Um, and the fact that these were highly classified documents, as high as top secret code word, um, makes it pretty clear to me the president has potential jeopardy here, compounded by what appear to be deliberate misrepresentations by the president or his team to the government about whether classified information remained at Mar-a-Lago, and yeah. hence the obstruction statute referenced in the search warrant. Ricky, you've been at this for uh, a long time, tracking legal cases of all sorts all across the country. Have you ever seen anyone facing more than a dozen legal, civil, congressional investigations at one time? And what is it like being an attorney for someone like that when they have competing, compounding legal concerns and interests? I have never seen this many investigations happening all at the same time, some in greater stages, some in lesser stages. But if you are an attorney for Donald Trump, you are well advised to separate each one and decide where you're going to devote your energies. Donald Trump, it appears, has been hiring lawyers from different places, so one lawyer does not have all of the responsibility. But this is not a, a good time for Donald Trump, at least if he thinks that everything is coming in upon him. However, we also know that Donald Trump enjoys the chaos, and we will see what happens in terms of his uh, decision if he is going to run or not in 2024. We sure will. Ricky Kleeman, CBS News legal analyst, David Laughman, former Justice Department official, thank you both for being here, and we'll be right back. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We want to turn now to Campaign 22. Our Robert Costa is on the campaign trail in Atlanta this morning. And the editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report, Amy Walter, good friend of Face the Nation, is also here with us. Good morning to both of you. Amy, I want to start with you and something that the White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain, said this week about the current state of the presidency and the Democratic Party. Take a listen. We now have a presidency where the president has delivered the largest economic recovery plan since Roosevelt, the largest infrastructure plan since Eisenhower, the most judges confirmed since Kennedy, the second largest health care bill since Johnson, and the largest climate change bill in history. And according to Politico, he went on to say, quote, the first time we've done gun control since President Clinton was here, the first time ever an African-American woman's been put on the Supreme Court. I think it's a record to take to the American people, he says. Are Democrats right now sitting in a pretty good position because of the issues and the environment, or does it have something to do with the candidates that they're running right. in these key races right. across the country? So Democrats are clearly in a much better place they were than when we were talking about things in August of last year, yeah. right? So certainly beyond just the accomplishments for the White House, we also have lower gas prices. And so we're getting a little bit of relief, at least when it comes to um, cost of living issues, which is going to be important for the midterms. To me, the big change as well has been that the focus, instead of being on problems that were happening, whether it was Democrats unable to get big pieces of legislation done or on the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which obviously was chaotic, or on 
the fact that inflation was biting a lot of folks. Instead, what are what is the focus been on? It's been on January 6th. It's been on what's happening at Mar-a-Lago. It's been on competitive Republican primaries that have talked a lot about Donald Trump and election denial. And so the camera, so to speak, the media focus has been on, oh, and on abortion as well. All the things that are not great for Republicans. Now let's translate that into the campaign to come. Republicans say, that's okay. We had difficult primaries. The focus has not been on the issues we want to talk about. It's been on things Democrats want to talk about. We're going to refocus back onto inflation, the economy, and Biden. Those things will help us win. But pivoting to those issues as candidates who have taken position, our candidates who've taken positions on election denial, on Donald Trump, on abortion that are outside the mainstream. So Republicans now have to pivot to the center. Democrats are going to do everything they can to make that hard for them to do. And to that point, Bob, let's listen to something that uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell had to say about the state of Senate races back in April. It's a perfect storm of problems for the Democrats. And how could you screw this up? It's actually possible. (laughs) And we've had some experience with that in the past. And to Amy's point, Bob, they may be having it right now with these candidates that are struggling to get back to the center and talk about other issues of bigger concern. What are you hearing from Republican sources regarding the state of these campaigns and the worry they may have about whether they can land the plane in November? When I was up at Capitol Hill in recent weeks talking to Republican aides, Republican senators, they kept talking about 2010 and the ghosts of 2010. That was the year there was a Tea Party wave, conservatives on the march in many parts of the country, but Republicans disappointed in the Senate race. You might remember some names like Christine O'Donnell, who failed in her Senate bid in Delaware. Ken Buck failed in his Senate bid in Colorado, though he later got elected to the House. Republicans worry that though they have a pretty good shot, they feel, in the House, the Senate, because of candidates like Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, J.D. Vance in Ohio, who are not necessarily catching fire, uh, that that could not bode well for the midterms this fall, especially with the Senate. There's another round of primary contests, Amy, Tuesday night in New York and in Florida that may give us a sense of the scope and the size of the majority Republicans could enjoy in the House going forward. But what else should we be watching for we in those contests? We should be looking at, actually, there's a special election also taking place in New York. Hudson Valley, this is an open seat Democrats hold. Biden won it by just two points. These are the kinds of seats that Republicans are going to need to win if they want to have a big wave, if we're looking at a big wave. And the two issues that we're hearing about, abortion and inflation. Hudson Valley is in the 518 area code where I'm from, so I call that God's country. From, okay, by, by very the way. good. Very uh, good. Bob, real quick, uh, we noticed this past week, uh, former Vice President Mike Pence did something that usually a presidential candidate does. They went to St. Anselm College in New Hampshire. They went to the Iowa State Fair with Chuck Grassley. And I think we have a picture of this. He even sent flowers to Chuck Grassley's wife. What is up with the former president? What would be his path forward? And... Does he really have a theory of the case to make at this point? Whether it's former Vice President Mike Pence or Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, there's a galaxy of Republican uh, contenders, possible contenders, who are looking at 2024 and calculating what does it look like if Trump runs? What does it look like if Trump doesn't run. Uh, and at this point, no one's entirely sure. They believe the former president, based on their own conversations and our reporting backs us up, is looking hard at a race, possibly an announcement later this summer, this fall, toward the winter. But if he doesn't get in for some reason, uh, they want to be ready. That's why Pence is in Iowa, in New Hampshire. He wants to have the relationships with people like Grassley. So if the, the dynamics change in any way, He can jump in and have a foundation, having tried to rehabilitate himself with the Trump voter, with his book coming out this fall and some of these visits. But at this point, there's a lot of uncertainty, too. When I talk to top Republicans in this country, they don't know where these investigations are going. I'm heading to Palm Beach this week. You have the affidavit battle down there between the government and the Trump lawyers. Because of that uncertainty over the Trump investigations, so many Republicans are saying we at least need to start laying an an informal groundwork for a possible run.
But we will see. Robert Costa down in Atlanta, headed to Florida. Thank you. Amy Walter, the Cook Political Report. We thank you, as always. Great to see you. We'll have coverage of the Florida New York primaries on the CBS News streaming network Tuesday night. And we'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Margaret will be back next Sunday. For Margaret and all the hardworking folks at Face the Nation, I'm Ed O'Keefe. Today's guests were the Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, former White House COVID response coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burks, Republican Congressman Mike Turner, CBS News legal analyst, Ricky Kleeman, David Lothman, the former chief of the Justice Department's counterintelligence and export control section, CBS News chief election and campaign correspondent, Robert Costa, and Amy Walter, the editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager, this broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. You can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network at 12 p.m. on Sundays, and it's available on demand on Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.